Well, today we return to our series in the book of Exodus. Exodus, the second book of your Bible. And we come to the end of chapter 12 through chapter 13 today. And our passage today brought to mind a family experience from about a year and a half ago. It came time to drive our eldest daughter, Autumn, to college for a freshman year in Kentucky. Uh, We had prepared well. We had packed up the expedition. And one morning we headed out for a two-day drive to Louisville, Kentucky. I got on I-25 North. Because that's what I do when our vehicle is loaded up for a family trip. We have family in Denver, and so the the path down I-25, rather up I-25 to Denver, is uh, well-worn with the Kelly's tires, you could say. And um, our, our vehicle sort of goes that way under certain circumstances. And that day, it went that way, down up I-25, for 45 minutes before my wife said, wait a minute, we should be on I-40. <laughs> ah. And so we, uh, you know, we looked up the Google Maps and saw that there's no faster route at that point than just to turn around and go all the way back to Albuquerque to pick up I-40 here. So a two-day trip started out with a 90-minute exercise in futility other than the fact that um, it makes for a good joke in our family these days. Remember that time that dad just kept driving down I-25? So sometimes you think you have departed and you haven't yet quite departed. Sometimes you think you've left, but maybe you haven't yet made much progress. And that's loosely related to our passage in Exodus today, which I've called heading out. And if you've been with us in recent weeks, you might say, heading out, but haven't we already seen that? Haven't we seen the Israelites already head out of Egypt? And indeed we have. We saw that fateful night, the Passover. We've already seen the institution of the Passover meal and that week-long feast of unleavened bread, the latter of which signifies the haste at which the Israelites left Egypt one night. We've already read of the actual departure. You can see it in chapter 12, verse 37, that the people journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. Verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them. In verse 39, they were thrust out of Egypt. Or verse 42 of chapter 12, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And yet, our passage for this week will reiterate the institution of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It'll give some added detail and some added regulation to those meals. It will also show us another Passover-related rite, R-I-T-E. What we'll see is called the Consecration of Firstborns in chapter 13, verse 11 to 16. But it's only after those repeated instructions and added instructions that we get 
geographic movement happening once again in verse 17 and following. So yes, the Israelites now are out of slavery, and yet they haven't yet apparently made much progress until that progress picks up again in verse 17 and following. And when it does pick up, God has them moving in the wrong direction, or so it would seem. Unlike my wrong turn up I-25, for them, the long way is the right way. The, the wrong way, so it would seem, is God's way. And so today we'll look at Exodus 12, starting in verse 43 through the end of chapter 13. And we'll take it in three parts. Three F's will help us think through these parts. Foreigners, firstborns, and following God. So let's read the first section now at the end of chapter 12, starting in verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Well, we could call this section, Foreigners Welcomed If Circumcised. Foreigners Welcomed If Circumcised. The Passover night has already been experienced the yearly memorial has already been instituted, and now we get some clarification here about who is to partake of these special meals. Who are these for, and under what conditions can others partake of them? You might remember we saw back in chapter 12, verse 38, that a mixed multitude came out of Egypt. And cer certainly that has something to do with ethnicity whether it was Egyptians who began to see that this God is not like their gods and put their lot with the Israelites, or perhaps those of other nations, perhaps those from among the slaves that were held by the Egyptians. But, but it's not just Jews who leave Egypt. It's Jews and what's called foreigners or strangers here. What about them? Can they partake in these meals? Can they be included in these memorials of God's redemption and covenant? Well, yes, sort of. This is one of those on the one hand and on the other hand kind of matters. So on the one hand, God's gracious inclusion is on display here. Foreigners can be included in the promises that were given ethnic, ethnically through Abraham. God was saying all along, in fact, that he wouldn't just make one nation out of Abraham, but that nation and Abraham's offspring would be a blessing to the nations. 
Right? We read in Exodus that God is making himself known, making himself known to one nation. He set his love and covenant upon, but, but he's making himself known among the nations, plural. So, on the one hand, there is a, there is a heartbeat in God for his glory to spread. And it is foreshadowed in little hints like this, like in Rahab, who came in under the covenant and apparently was saved. There's a foreshadow in the Old Testament of a day coming when there is a sort of no-holds-barred kind of invitation among the nations. But here's the other hand. On the other hand, that day was not yet at the time of Exodus. Circumcision here is required. In fact, no foreigner could eat of this meal without it. He must circumcise himself, and all his males must be circumcised. Then he can eat it. Then he'll be treated as a native of the land. Again, gracious. How kind, how inclusive. And yet, circumcision is the pathway in. Essentially, what God was saying is you, you must become Jewish to partake of these promises and these celebrations. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It signified the removal of the flesh, not literal flesh, but spiritual flesh. It pictured the, the need for the removal of sin and the removal of a sin nature. It was a sign that you believed God about a problem, there's a problem within us. And you trusted God for him to do something. Circumcision itself didn't do anything, but it did signify the need for God to do something. But this is why the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 is so monumental, such a watershed moment. Remember that the book of Acts is the story which unfolds geographically, starting with the promise in Acts 1.8, where Jesus says, my disciples will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That almost works like a table of contents for the book of Acts. That's exactly what happens as non-Jews are beginning to believe and be saved and come in. But when you get to Acts 15, the question still remains, do they have to be circumcised in order to become Christians? Do they have to become Jewish before they can become Christians? And the conclusion after some hearty debate was a hearty no. Gentiles don't need to become Jewish to get in on Jesus. So Acts 15 and that fateful decision, it marked a new era of the no-holds-barred kind of global invitation. Acts 15 marked the beginning of a, an era, we could put it this way, when missionaries no longer needed to carry a scalpel. I leave you to flush that out. Now, since Acts 15, circumcision is no longer the sign of inclusion whether for Jews or Gentiles. Baptism is now the sign 
of the new covenant. Baptism is now the sign of entering in. And it signifies something better than circumcision ever could. Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what's primarily portrayed in the waters of baptism. And that death and resurrection portrayed in baptism also comes with it. Well, a real circumcision. What Moses only dreamed about in Deuteronomy 30 a circumcision of the heart. That's what's really needed. So Paul can say in Colossians 2 that in him, in Jesus, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's not external or physical. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. But Colossians 2 is a long way off from Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is at the same time inclusive and pointing ahead to the day when God's inclusion of the nations would get even more gracious. So if you're not a Christian, we we want you to hear this. We want you to hear, especially now, but, but even in days of old, you can come in. You are welcome at the table. You can come to Jesus and directly to him, and you can do it today. And you must also know There's a need for something really drastic for that to happen. Something really drastic. Something even more drastic than circumcision. The cross. The cross of Christ is the means by which we enter in and are saved. Well, let's read on. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 16 is our next section. The Lord said to Moses... Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory." You shall tell your son on that day. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first open wombs. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. 
Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time, in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontals, frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Well, we could call this section Firstborns Consecrated and Redeemed. We now have a third memorial related to the Passover night, the yearly Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which followed the week after Passover. But also, whenever a firstborn was born to a family, whether human or animal, it was to be consecrated to the Lord or redeemed. To consecrate something to the Lord is to give it to him. It's to set it apart. As it says in our passage, it is the Lord's. Or as God says, it's mine. Now it wasn't just the firstborn that was his. Phil Riken, president of Wheaton College and the author of a big and great commentary on Exodus, he says this, the point of consecrating the firstborn was really to show that the whole family belonged to God. The firstborn represented all the offspring, including the girls as well as the rest of the boys. The firstborn stood for the family as a part representing the whole, the way, for example, a captain represents his team at the beginning of a football game. Well, I think that's right and well put. And as an aside, by way of a, a quick application for us, isn't this true of our children still today? We don't need to make sacrifices for our children, and we'll get to why in just a bit, but the principle is the same. Our children are God's children. They're his. First and foremost, they are his. More than they are ours, they are his. And so parenting is something like a stewardship. It is simply putting to use and investing in what is God's. And that affects the way we view our kids. And that affects the way we raise our kids. And the goals that we have for them. Well, I leave you to your community groups or for husbands and wives to think through more of the implications of that stewardship. But back to the landscape of Exodus, keep this in mind that the whole story of Exodus is essentially one of sonship. This is about sonship. Remember back in chapter 1 and 2 how when the Israelites became so many and hence were a potential threat to Pharaoh, Pharaoh instituted a program of executing all Hebrew males. Recall in chapter 4 that when God told Moses to go talk to Pharaoh, he says, here's what you're going to say. Thus says the Lord, 
Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And that's what the tenth and final plague was all about. The salvation of these sons and the judgment upon these other sons. And that's what the consecration of the firstborn was meant to communicate and remind God's people about. In the case of the consecration of the firstborn animal, to consecrate it meant to kill it, to literally give it to the Lord, give it up. Not like a pagan sacrifice like you might see in an Indiana Jones movie where they're trying to appease an angry God with some sacrifice. No, God's intention here was to show and to demonstrate what's his. And the best is his. And it's all his. But this was also another opportunity for God to demonstrate substitution. The possibility of substitution. Did you notice the peculiar case of the donkey in verse 13? Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Now what's going on here? Well, donkeys were considered ceremonially unclean. And so they couldn't be a sacrifice to the Lord. So two options with firstborn donkeys. Either you break its neck, because that's not a sacrifice, or you redeem it with a substitute sacrifice. Here again we see this idea of substitution. The clean for the unclean. The, the guilty for the, the righteous. That was what the Passover night was all about. God's judgment was coming, but his judgment would pass over those homes where the sacrifice had been made and the blood applied to the doorposts in faith. And here with the consecration of the firstborns, it doesn't just apply to donkeys or animals, but also to human sons. That's the rest of verse 13. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. They're not to be sacrificed, but there is to be a sacrifice for them. And get this, what that means then is that there's a need for firstborn sons to be redeemed because like donkeys of all things, they are they're born unclean. They need sacrifice. These firstborn sons, the prized possession of every father in ancient Near East. You know, the one who would be the head of the next generation, the representation of the future of the line and the family. These firstborn sons, no matter how handsome or promising or potentially talented they might be, they are born unclean and there's a need for redemption. And again, they're just merely representative, representative of the whole. It's not just firstborns, but secondborns and thirdborns and daughters as well. It's true of all humanity. We're born spiritually unclean, and there's great need for redemption. This provided a vivid, living illustration for that need and for that hope. 
And for a long time, that was God's classroom, you could say. That's what he was teaching them by way of illustration until the substance and the reality and the fulfillment came. And in Jesus Christ, we have both the ultimate firstborn and the perfect and final sacrifice. So Colossians 1 speaks of Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that he was born before Adam and Eve somehow. It means that among God's birthed creation, Jesus is foremost. He has the preeminence of them all. And as Colossians goes on to say, he's also the firstborn from the dead. In that sense, he was the first of God's creation to die and be resurrected. Not just resuscitated like Lazarus was, but fully resurrected, a whole new life. The first one of a whole new creation. That's our Jesus. And in his death and resurrection, that's where we find our redemption. That word redeem is found in the New Testament many times. Titus 2, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify a people for himself. Or Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Now Jesus, the firstborn par excellence, didn't need to be redeemed. He didn't need a sacrifice for himself. But in God's marvelous, unthinkable grace, the firstborn became the sacrifice. He became our redemption. And so now our salvation, says the writer of Hebrews, is not by means of blood of bulls and goats, but by the means of Christ's own blood. And in that, he secured an eternal redemption. The writer of Hebrews even goes so far as to talk of the church as the assembly of the firstborn. Meaning that now, because of his death and resurrection, the, the preeminent firstborn has made us firstborns with him. All rights and privileges just like his. Not because we've earned it, but simply by grace received through faith. Do you have that? Are you one of God's firstborn with Jesus because of his death and resurrection? I hope it's true of you today. And if it is true of you, Christian, then how much more should we seek to pass it on to others, not least the next generation? Did you see in verse 8 and 9, and then verse 14 to 16, this is just like we saw back in chapter 12, a similar paragraph there. A conversation between fathers and sons. You're going to tell your son what this is all about. You're going to tell your son what this meal signifies and how it all went down that night in Egypt. And then he's going to tell his sons, and they're going to tell their sons. Or when he comes to you and he says, Dad, what's this business of our new donkey uh, surviving because 
an unblemished lamb was killed. Well, son, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you, pull up a chair. And a dad unpacks it for him. Well, this is, this is good parenting. This is partly how the gospel gets passed along. This is, for many of us, how it came to us. We first heard it from mom or dad. Well, let's read on our last section of chapter 13, verses 17 and following. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. We could call this third section, following God into the wilderness. They're finally here, heading out in earnest. And the departure itself, that's what Exodus means, departure. The departure itself is significant. The geographic movement is by itself significant, but it's described here with certain details which reverberate on both sides of our passage in our Bibles. In other words, this points to what's already happened in the Bible. It points to what's to come in the book of Exodus and even beyond. So where is God leading them? Well, Toward the Red Sea, verse 18 says. And if you've read the book of Exodus even just once all the way through, you know what's coming at the Red Sea. Heck, if you've seen Prince of Egypt, you know what's coming at the Red Sea. And that's what we'll look at together next week. And we know the final destiny, at least for Old Testament times, is the promised land. The land of Canaan. God promised it to Abraham here those promises are repeated again in verses 3 and 4 of our passage. The land of Canaan is where they're headed, and that's why they take with them the bones of Joseph. Old Joseph, who died in Egypt, and in Genesis 50, had as his dying request that his bones would be picked up and taken when God's people left Egypt one day in view of the promised land. The book of Hebrews in its classic hall of faith in chapter 11 comments on Joseph's great faith. It says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. It was also a great expression of faith that Moses, before he left Egypt that night in haste, he collected the old bones of Joseph, not for sentimental reasons, not 
not to be respectful so much, but because in faith he believed Joseph would be going back home to Canaan one day. One day, who knows how long. God didn't lead them directly toward Canaan upon departing from Egypt. In fact, he led them out at first in the opposite direction. Why? Why does God lead them to the Red Sea? Well, as we'll see next week, in part because God's not done displaying his power and glory over Pharaoh. But also, our passage, verse 17, God is also hemming in his people so that they can't turn back to Egypt when trouble comes, which it will. And they don't know that. They don't know exactly what's coming. They don't know exactly how long this journey will be before the promised land. They likely knew that they went the wrong way, but they trusted God. They trusted God because they knew he was with them. He was leading them. A, a, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Now, this is, this is no natural phenomenon. You can Google uh, fire tornadoes. If a tornado goes over some fire, fire goes up in the tornado, it looks like a fire tornado. This is not a fire tornado. This went for 40 years. This is a miracle. This is God's presence. God often reveals his presence, which is unseen, in these visible ways like cloud or smoke or fire. And how kind of God to do that here. He could have said, all right, you guys are out now. I'll keep an eye on you. I'll, I'll check in from time to time. He could have, you know, carved out arrows in the sand, where to go and where to turn. But he didn't. God is now beginning to dwell with his people. Not just save them from slavery and free them, but to bring them to himself. And this theme of God's presence is going to develop and grow in the book of Exodus and far beyond. From the pillar of cloud and fire to Mount Sinai in chapter 19 and 20, to the tent of meeting, to the tabernacle, and beyond Exodus, to the promised land, to the temple, and into the New Testament with the coming of Jesus. If you want to see God come to us, if you want to see God show up among his people, if you want to see God lead us where to go, well, he has done that supremely and most importantly in Jesus the second person of the Trinity, God himself, who became flesh and dwelt among us, John tells us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God has come to us in Jesus. And if you skeptically say, oh yeah, where is he? I want to see him. I'll be encouraged if I can see him. Well, remember doubting Thomas. Yeah, if I can touch his side, if I can touch the holes in his hands, then I'll believe. Well, Jesus rebuked Thomas. Jesus said, blessed are those 
who believe in me and haven't seen. John ends his gospel account that these things have been written down. We saw these things, and these things have been written down so that you would believe. So for those who see him, Jesus, in what is written, trusting those who actually did see him, for them there is the ongoing promise of the Holy Spirit within John 14, John 16, Romans 8, these are passages which unpack the implications of the Holy Spirit dwelling within. Jesus said it is better for him to go away that the Holy Spirit might come. I'd encourage you to read Romans 8 at your next earliest convenience and and look for what the Spirit does. Look for what the Spirit's coming means for the Christian. The implications of the Holy Spirit within are staggering, and they are many. God now so dwells with his people that it's far better than a torch that keeps moving, and you can see somewhere there off in the distance. He's much better to us than a pillar of cloud that shows us where to go geographically. He's within. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray. The Holy Spirit prays for us with words that we don't know to pray, with groanings that can't be uttered with words. The Holy Spirit resonates with our spirit that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. And it is this divine presence, this spirit that helps us as we follow God in our own wilderness. You see, the Exodus story is sort of analogous to the Christian life. There are many differences, and we have to point those out, like here's circumcision, here's baptism, but there are some similarities. This story is pretty familiar. We Christians have been rescued from the bondage and slavery of sin, and we're not yet home, but we're on the way, and he's with us, and he'll speak to us, and he'll dwell with us, and intercession will be made for us. Today, we get to celebrate salvation in the picture of baptism. Like those meals and rites of the Old Testament, which gave way to the better meal of the Lord's Supper, which we've talked about in recent weeks. So circumcision gives way to baptism. And like those old meals and rites signified something. Just like they pictured something that was monumental, that already happened. So baptism portrays death and life, and primarily Jesus' death in life, his burial in resurrection. That's why you'll see some today go down into the water and come up out of it. They are saying to us and to the world that this is what they identify with and this is what they're putting all their trust in. Jesus' death and resurrection. And they're also testifying to us that they've had their own kind of death and resurrection 
themselves, as it were. There's a death to an old self and to old ways and resurrection of a new self and new identity in Christ to walk in newness of life. So baptism is now the way in which we show that we've entered in. It signifies something much better. Remember I said something far more drastic than circumcision is needed. And baptism shows us what it is, the cross. And now in the new covenant we pass this this sign along, not according to blood, not according to birth, not just fathers to sons, but it's received because of faith. It's passed along because the reality is true. We Christians aren't to keep getting baptized. You might wish that you could. No, but we keep thinking about our baptism like a like a mark on the hand. Remember that language in Exodus 13? Like a, like a mark on the hand, like something hitting you between the eyes. We may not keep getting baptized, but we've been baptized once and we remember it. And we keep seeing others be baptized. And we take opportunity for this to be like a, a sign on our hand, a, a hit between the eyes, something in our mouths and in our hearts. So may we all today marvel at salvation in Jesus. May we thank him for those who are being baptized today and the, the salvation that it represents. And may we thank the Lord for our salvation afresh. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you the foreigner, the outsider can be welcomed. The unclean can be made clean by substitution. We can be firstborns because the firstborn made perfect sacrifice for us. And on account of that, we want to follow you wherever you lead us. Help us, Lord, to lean into your presence to thank you for revealing yourself in your word. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for all the promises that your word has communicated to us in this full package salvation in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.